They're getting closer. What's what's getting closer? The bed bugs. The bed bugs. <sighs> First they were in Paris, then they jumped the channel to the UK, and now they're in South Korea. South Korea? Oh, so clean there. I know, I know. No one is safe from these things, whether you have the best hygiene practices or not. People in Korea are staying off public transport, away from the cinema to avoid catching them. Oh and get this, gosh. Jess, the government has even set up a specialist response team to get rid of them. Oh my gosh, I'm glad they're taking it so seriously. God speed, South Korea. <laughs> I mean, it's just you and 10,000 kilometres of ocean preventing Aotearoa from having the same fate. And look, we don't have a government. John Oliver's interfering in Bird of the Year. We have enough to be dealing with. We do not need bed bugs. Anyway, moving on. Kia ora, this is Newsball. I'm Jess. And I'm Aaron. And this is what's worth talking about. New Zealand's obsession with those sweet vape clouds has given us an unenviable position right in the top few vaping nations in the world, according to an OECD survey. Israel's ground invasion of Gaza is well underway, but how does it end? We speak to a Middle East expert about whether troops could be there indefinitely. It's last chance saloon for the Black Caps. They need to beat Sri Lanka tonight to have any hope of moving on to the semis of the Cricket World Cup. And too much of a good thing how orange vegetables can leave you looking like you've gone mad with the spray tan. All that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Well, from pineapple puffs to the sweet smell of cotton candy as you walk through the middle of the town, it feels like vapes can be everywhere. And it turns out the stats actually back that up. We've been trawling through the OECD's latest global health snapshot, which reveals the number of Kiwis picking up a vape is skyrocketing. Almost one in 10 over the age of 15 regularly use vaping products. And the only country ahead of us in these latest figures is Estonia. Wow. So have we moved too slowly to crack down on the puff? Letitia Harding is the chief executive of the Asthma and Respiratory Foundation and joins us now. Kia ora. Kia ora. Are you surprised at how high New Zealand is in this survey? No. I mean, we've been worried about the youth uptake of, of vaping for some time. And so these results aren't surprising. Um, I think we've, we've generally gone about it the wrong way when we've introduced these products. Tell me about that. How have we, how have we messed that up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there, there is a role for them, for uh, people who are current smokers, like adults who want to quit smoking, there may be a role. But we know that's really with intense wraparound services, not going into a vape store and just buying, you know, a vape without any of those smoking cessation support services. So when vaping really took hold in New Zealand in 2017 with advertising and also sponsoring of, you know, music festivals and all of that sort of promotion, when there weren't any regulations, I think that's when it really, you know, took off. Do you feel like we kind of, I guess in that sense, shot ourselves in the foot by not regulating early enough? Is that why you think perhaps we're so high? Yeah, definitely. I think that's why, you know, now we're seeing we've got 1,458, I think, of suspicious vape retailers around the country. You know, we were slow to impart regulations, even being over 18 to purchase these products. You know, that took some time to come into effect. You know, you're looking at around 2020. So, you know, during that time, you've got three years of, of youth experimenting, then becoming addicted to these really high nicotine concentration products. Is it a price worth paying, though, to help people quit smoking. I know we talked about it would be more ideal if there were wraparound cessation services, but it makes, well, potentially it makes it really easy for people to switch. 
it's come at the expense of our youth. And I think everybody would agree with that. You know, we're looking at, as you said, around 20% of regular vapours of our youth, if not more. So I think this is, this is something that's come at the cost of that. So what needs to happen next? Can we just kind of tighten up the controls or do we need more drastic action or even that sort of behavioural change? Well, for a start, we need to stop the proliferation of specialist vape retailers and access. So we run programs in schools with our Maori community liaison and the biggest thing that our kids, our tamariki, are saying to us is accessibility. They're just widely available. And then we also need to now look at investing and supporting our rangatahi to quit vaping because those services are not out there. Is it hard to quit vaping in comparison to quitting smoking? The issue is that with vapes, you've got really high nicotine concentration um, and they're usually nicotine salts, so they're really palatable when people are um, vaping them and obviously you've got the the myriad of flavours. So that and the ease of the behavioural pattern, you know, with a cigarette it burns out. With the vape you can, you know, vape it, put it in your pocket, come go like this. And so that's a big part of it as well. Prime Minister-elect Chris Luxon's previously indicated he's open to banning disposable vapes. Is that the answer or, you know, are you looking for more from this new government? Yeah, we, we would like to see disposable vapes banned and, of course, that includes ones with uh, removable batteries because the vaping industry has gotten around those disposable vapes, you know, requiring batteries. But I think we need to relook at the prescription model and just prevent any more specialist vape stores from from popping up. And we probably we need to reduce that as well, probably in line with the reduction in tobacco cigarette outlets, which is you know going to go down to six hundred. We probably need to be looking at that as well. Letitia Harding, chief executive of the Asthma and Respiratory Foundation, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Well, while New Zealand shapes up pretty well overall in these OECD health indicators, it isn't exactly going great guns in some other areas either. 34% of us have measured in as obese, and Kiwis are a bit of a boozy bunch too, coming in just above average for binge drinking adults. Importantly though, we are still behind Aussies on the number of binge drinking, so I guess we can take that as a trans-Tasman win. We're back here again, baby. It's Is It Cake Time. And with Imo away, Aaron is in the hot seat to see if he can tell fact from fiction. The real headline and the headline that is just, well, it's cake. It's fake. To get an early insight into what headlines you need to decide between, head over to our Insta, that's Newsable NZ, and vote for which one is not the fakey cake. Israel's ground invasion in Gaza has pretty much now divided the territory in half and it's the first time that Israeli soldiers have been in the heart of Gaza City since Israel withdrew from the area in 2005. But how exactly does this invasion end? Do Israeli soldiers remain in Gaza indefinitely or is there a peaceful transition of the land back to Palestinian control? To give us some expert analysis is Dr Leon Goldsmith, a senior lecturer on Middle Eastern politics at Otago University. Leon, thanks for coming back on the show. Now, would Israel have had an end in mind before they started this ground invasion? I think there was a lot of debate within the war cabinet that was set up about what was going to be the end game. And I think this is one of the things that the more moderate politicians within the Israeli government were talking about. What is the way that this ends? How does this finish after we reduce Hamas? I think there were sort of four different options that were being presented. None of them very good. And so the first sort of main option that was put on the table was a reoccupation 
of the Gaza Strip, almost like a return to the pre-2005 situation where there were settlers, uh, settlements, there was Israeli security forces, and it was essentially an occupied space in the same way that most of the West Bank is. And, and I think this is an option which was very popular amongst the more uh, hardline uh, right-wing religious Zionist party, for example, who thought that this was basically an opportunity to be able to re-establish control. So this plan two is basically an invasion which destroys Hamas, it destroys its military capability, destroys its governing capacity, and then to just withdraw. And I think this is probably one of the least popular, given that that would leave a kind of a vacuum, which who knows what would fill that vacuum from an Israel point talking from an Israeli point of view here. I think this is the one that the Americans quite like is the idea of the Palestinian Authority being reinserted as the proxy governor. And they're in the West Bank at the moment, is that right? That's correct, yeah. So the Palestinian Authority has been the governing authority in the West Bank ever since the, the Oslo Accords in the mid-90s. Highly unpopular um, because they're seen as a proxy or basically a puppet in the hands of the Israeli government. I think the other idea, which seems to be what is being moved towards, so what we have Netanyahu saying is that they're going to have a security control over the whole Gaza Strip, but they have no intention to govern. So what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, I think what what is being uh, proposed is some kind of civil administration or some kind of international coalition. I think what the Israelis want to do is to pass the problem to someone else. So they're talking about they will be the ones that will patrol the streets. But in terms of the political authority, they want to hand it over to some kind of international coalition, whether that involves the Americans, the Europeans, and also friendly, uh, say friendly with uh, sort of like inverted commas, uh, Arab Muslim majority states. So they're probably thinking of countries like uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. What do you see as the future for the Palestinians of Gaza? I mean, is there a possibility this conflict could only drive more support towards, say, the likes of Hamas? I think it's very likely. I think we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing this not just in Gaza, we're seeing this globally. And I think that those who supported Hamas and probably provided the crucial material and intelligence and helped them to organize this attack will be very pleased to see what's happening around the world. I think they're very pleased to see Israel incredibly uh, isolated and its international standing damaged and its relationships with those Arab countries that it tried to normalize with um, damaged. So a lot of the things that were intended on October 7 have been achieved. The more that Israel disproportionately inflicts this horrendous humanitarian catastrophe on Gaza, the more that plan succeeds. Dr. Leon Goldsmith, Senior Lecturer on Middle Eastern Politics at Otago University. Thanks so much for joining us. Most welcome. Hey, we're still going to talk about the potential dangers of eating orange vegetables. Yes, 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 we know about the antioxidants, but you can always have too much of a good thing. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It'll help other people find us. 
It's make or break time in the Cricket World Cup. The Black Caps play their final match in the pool round against Sri Lanka tonight and a stonking victory would be rather nice to make sure we get through to the semi-finals. I just cannot, I cannot believe that record-breaking 401 runs against Pakistan wasn't enough. Damn you, Duckworth. Damn you, Lewis. Damn you, good Pakistani batters. <laughs> okay. To chew through all the possibilities of what could happen tonight, we're joined by Stuff's senior sports reporter, Ian Anderson. Welcome. Welcome to the pod. Hello. So, would a win over Sri Lanka be enough to get us through, Ian? It should be. Uh, in the barest of terms, a bigger win would be good, because obviously that would improve their net run rate, which is better than Pakistan and Afghanistan, who are the two sides who have got a chance of pushing New Zealand out in the semi-finals. But realistically, a win should be enough. That would still leave... For example, Pakistan, whose net run rate is only really just above zero, needing to win probably by sort of 120 to 150 runs or so in their final game of uh, the tournament, which is against England on Saturday, to get past them. The problem, of course, is that weather might play a part. Obviously, they still need to win as well, too, to to get to 10 points and, and put themselves in sort of prime spot. And how are we doing on the injury front? I mean, can we expect our strongest team? Just listening to Luke Ronke, who's the batting coach, but obviously uh, has an inkling on, on what's going on with the whole squad, saying that he's very hopeful that Lockie Ferguson will be fit to play, which is a, a key recall probably. Ferguson's missed the last two games with an Achilles strain, and obviously the bowling didn't go too well in that shortened game against Pakistan, so I'd imagine if he was anywhere close to being 100% fit, he would probably come back in that side for for that game. Yeah, let's hope so. And you just mentioned the rain before. Say it was rained off completely. What kind of happens to our points total then? Yeah, that wouldn't be ideal. There'd be a point each, which would put them on nine, and that leaves Uh. Afghanistan and Pakistan on eight. So a win for either of those sides would put them ahead of New Zealand and into the semi-finals. The forecast is for, certainly for some rain, certainly at the start, which is 2 p.m. Bengaluru time, being a day-night game, so I imagine we are probably going to have a reduced overs at some stage, but it may be that the rain is early rather than late like it was against Pakistan. Then they'll get an idea of exactly how many overs both sides would have rather than being changed late in the picture like it was in that game. And so if, uh, no, let's be positive, when we get through to the semi-final, <laughs> who are we facing? Well, that's the big thing too as well. Fourth place team, which uh, New Zealand will be hopefully is them, are facing India. The hosts, uh, the team that has gone through the tournament unbeaten so far, have got one more pool game against the Netherlands, have looked close to unbeatable. They've had a couple of shaky moments, but they've recovered from those very, very well. So obviously you're going to be playing in front of a massive, fevered home crowd. So if they do make the last four, they are certainly going to be underdogs in that semi-final next week. You've watched a couple of cricket games in your time. You nervous? No, I am. Um, I'm, I'm as objective as a journalist can be. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be objective, Ian. Go the Black Caps. Go Come the on, Black let's Caps. do it. Let's finish what we started. Uh, that is Ian Anderson, our senior sports reporter from Stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories, or you just prefer to listen instead. The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. 
Aaron, hey, personal question. How are you when it comes to your five-a-day, five-a-day fruit and veg? That is a very personal question. I feel like it's <laughs> the type of thing you get told. Five-a-day keeps the doctors away uh, as you grow up. And I'd like to think I'm not too bad. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I try, but that's the operative word. Oh, hey, that's more than that's more than most of us, more than me most days. And what we all know is that veggies are good for you. That is what Big Veggie tells us since we are about five. Get them in there. But what you might not know is that you can go overboard. Really? I thought you could never have too much broccoli. That's what mum told me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Mum might, mum might have more insight into green <laughs> vegetables than I do. But it turns out too many carrots can make you look like you've changed yourself to a sunbed for way too long. Okay. Okay. If you want a tan, how many carrots are we talking? <laughs> if you want a bad tan, well, for that, I'm going to point you towards Dina Rendell, who is a Scottish lady who had lovely pale skin and told the Mirror newspaper she looked like an oompa after eating <laughs> 10 carrots oh, a day. Wow. But that's not all. She topped up with sweet potatoes and three peppers. And all those orangey antioxidants messed with her internal chemistry and led to a condition called carotinemia, an unintended sunset-coloured tan. I'm starting to think that might have been the diet of a former US president. <laughs> There's no way he ate 10 carrots a day. I think that was probably more like Cheetos or Twisties or something. Anyway, as far as Dina is concerned, while the condition isn't dangerous, she has cut back on her 10-carrot-a-day habit and is now apparently a lighter shade of apricot. Lovely, that. I'll tell you one thing, that never happens with chips. Chips will never change your colour. Never. Always trust a trusty salt and vinegar chip. Anyway, that is Newsable for today. I'm Jessica McCarthy. And I'm Aaron Diamond. We'll catch you tomorrow for a Friday episode. See ya. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz support.